44-year-old G2P1 female at 38 weeks gestation presents to Ogden Regional Labor and Delivery with painless vaginal bleeding, and she is going into labor. Fortunately, they have Dr. Scott Swift working that night as a laborist. She begins to have massive hemorrhaging, and the diagnosis of placenta accreta is made. Now, this was not caught because the patient failed to come in for her prenatal care with her obstetrician. What would you do in this scenario? We're going to discuss many of the factors in that influence maternal mortality rates today with Scott Swift. I'm Scott Moore Dio. I am a pathologist and a assistant professor of medical laboratory sciences at Weber State. And I'm uh, Mark Johnson, family medicine physician in Layton, Utah, and board member of the Ogden Surgical Medical Society. Welcome to the Ogden Surgical Medical Society podcast. Today, we are interviewing Dr. Scott Swift, who's a laborist at Ogden Regional. Scott uh, attended Utah State University and graduated in 1972. He then uh, did his internship at Providence Hospital in Detroit, Michigan, and followed by an OBGYN residency at the University of Utah. Scott, it's interesting speaking to an OBGYN, um, and you think uh, about you know, pregnant patients, but my big question with you being a laborist is about maternal mortality, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So I, I'm, I'm just wondering, as a generality, is maternal mortality in the U.S. going up, going down, staying the same? Well, when I was in Detroit, uh, our first grand rounds was, uh, what do you do with the mother who's been shot in the spleen? I said, well, that's interesting. And so the next week is, what do you do with the mother who's got, was shot in the bullets in the baby? And then the next week was, what do you do with the mother who got shot in the hip? So it, it depends on where you're living, but the maternal mortality rate in the United States has gone up 25% over the last 10 years. How is it in Utah and the world? And, and what about right here in Ogden for us at home? Well, when you're in Detroit, it's kind of interesting. You do practice medicine in a third world country. And uh, so you get an idea what it's like in the world. The world actually maternal mortality rate has dropped about 40% over the last 20 years. The opportunity of changing risk factors by a lot of non-governmental organizations has had a profound effect. Yet 60% of the world mortality occurs in Africa in the sub-Sahara and Asia part of the world. There's a book written, it was kind of interesting. Uh, it's called, Where Have All the Mothers Gone? And it talks about barriers. And it talks, they, they just tell stories. And one of these um, sort of trained midwives practices in this little village. And if she has a problem, she has to put the mother and strap the mother to her and they get on a motorcycle and and have to drive about 30 miles uh, on a dirt road to get help. And so when you're you're looking in the United States and other places, you do have to realize that there are places 
that people sometimes have to drive hundreds of miles to get care. And consequently, you get third world statistics. Third world statistics is one in a hundred mothers die and one in 10 babies die. It sounds like there's a big kind of disparity of care there. There is. And we're, we're seeing that in the United States and it's divided across the board from rural settings that have no people that will practice there. Texas had a real problem with it. They had a real malpractice problem up until about 15 years ago. They got to the point where people had to drive 200 miles to see an OB, neurosurgeon, or general surgeon. And they then put the Texas Initiative and corrected that problem by their malpractice reform. But Texas still, their maternal mortality is 36 to 38 per 100,000. Utah is about 17, and California is about four. So that's just in the United States. There's that much disparity uh, that we're dealing with. So, Dr. Swift, we were wondering what uh, are, are kind of the top five causes of maternal mortality. And I imagine maybe that top five varies, you know, from uh, maybe region to region, even in the United States, and then and especially, uh, you know, worldwide, it may be different. But give us a sense of what are the top um, causes of maternal mortality in, in those different places. The biggest problem we've had is gathering the data and what constitutes maternal mortality. Um, if you're reading the World Health Organization, the maternal mortality would include pregnancy, delivery, and 42 days after delivery. But if you're looking at the CDC and the state of Utah, you'll notice in the state of Utah, when you come to you'll see we're tracking along about 10, 11 maternal deaths a year. And all of a sudden we jump up to 20 and what hand is Utah. And now the CDC has changed it so that it's pregnancy delivery and one year after delivery. And what they found is a third of the deaths occur during pregnancy, a third occur at time of delivery, and a third occur a year after delivery. And those that occur after delivery are mental health, suicide, and drug overdose. And now that has moved into the number one cause of death in the Mountain West. And are you seeing the those uh, similar demographics with uh, Utah compared to the rest of the uh, nation, or are there are there differences there as far as uh, causes of, of maternal mortality? Well, for the United States, the maternal mortality rates around twelve per hundred to seventeen is the problem we have is this maternal mortality statistics weren't gathered for about three years, three to four years, and then again we're talking about different methodologies of what are you going to include. Our maternal mortality is less than the national average, but it does encompass those three areas. The cause of death in those three areas is different. Uh, the cause of death 
is cardiovascular stroke in the one-third during pregnancy. During delivery, it's hemorrhage, cardiovascular, and amniotic fluid embolus. And one week after delivery, it's hemorrhage, preeclampsia, and infection. And then from a week out, then you get the suicide and the drug overdose. Did you mention pulmonary embolism? Is that, you see that mostly postpartum or you're also seeing that as a top cause uh, antepartum? Well, they, they kind of loosely put that under cardiovascular slash embolization. Yeah. So it's sometimes hard to tease that one out. Um, so yeah, that's that's in that that mix. So Dr. Swift, I, I wanted to kind of get to a to a timely topic here. Um, as there are you know some racial tensions here um, in America, I I wanted to see if you could speak a little bit toward the um, racial disparities in the U.S. regarding maternal mortality rates, um, and and then kind of follow it up and, and see how that applies here in Ogden. Well, uh, Utah and the United States, we pretty much mirror it. The non-Hispanic white maternal mortality was 14.7. Non-Hispanic black is 37.1. And Hispanic was 11.8. So that has a big difference. But then if you mix in age, for all ages, again, it's around 17.4 for Utah. Under 25, it's 10 per 100,000. 25 to 39, it's 16. But 40 and over, it's 81. So it's 7.7 times more dangerous than a 25-year-old. So the what you have is you mix in race and age, and it can be quite lethal. Are there any, um, that, that's interesting because I've, I've thought of that a little bit, but are, are there socioeconomic factors like access to healthcare or ethnic factors? I, age is definitely a factor. I agree with you there. Well, I always go back to the story of the lady putting them on the back of the motorcycle and driving them to the hospital that's the, a lot of the barriers we're dealing with. The older the pregnant patient, they're less willing or too busy to come in for visits. And so a lot of times you may see them late in the second or early third trimester. And if they have blood pressure problems, you can have superimposed toxemia on top of that on your first visit. And so you're again you're looking in the in the uh, non-hispanic black population again cardiovascular and stroke are the two big killers and so if you're not even seeing these people um, you can't really modify that very much the biggest barrier we have in america's unfortunately it's our healthcare system with covid 19 we're looking at 40 million people lost their insurance who joined with the other 20 plus million who didn't have insurance. We're almost getting up to a third, a third, a third. So yes, now you put a whole nother barrier there uh, for people to get health care. Um, and the sad part of this is these maternal mortality, 60% of them are preventable. Dr. Swift on that, um, 
so if I hear you right, um, there's a lot of co-founding factors on this. Um, you, had, you mentioned age. Uh, Dr. Moore mentioned socioeconomic differences. I think you mentioned that uh, cardiovascular disease might be higher rates in uh, black population. And I guess that is also a factor. But if I hear you right, uh, access to health care, do you see that as, as maybe the biggest uh, difference um, between ethnic groups? I see that these are barriers. Like I said, it's like the, the lady on the motorcycle. The, a lot of these people have trouble even navigating the healthcare system, even if they're in it. And so, yes, we put up a lot of barriers. I mean, you have free medical clinics, but you know nobody provides prenatal care in those medical clinics. Medicaid does reach down. All you need is a positive pregnancy test to qualify for it, but then you have to find a provider to take it. So nice thing about Ogden is we do have Midtown, which is sort of a safety net that uh, a lot of people can get into. And, and there's a lot of support there. You have an OB that goes down there. You have access to maternal fetal medicine. I think it's interesting. I, I, I look back when I started medical school, uh, when I was a senior, I did a rotation and th there was no newborn ICU. The nursery, any preemie was just put at the back of the nursery. And if it was alive the next day, then you did supportive care. So I left for Detroit and I came back in 77 and they started a newborn ICU, but they would only accept infants over 32 weeks. And we have now seen that drop, 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 drop down to where down to 26 weeks and 25 weeks. So infant mortality has improved, improved, improved but we're we're having a problem with our system itself it's, it's it's a broken system switching gears a little bit um tell us what your insight is about um maternal prescription uh medication i i would assume you see more patients now pregnant young pregnant women who are on medications of all different kinds than than maybe you used to see um and so we're not talking about illegal medications, but but prescription medicines. What what do you see happening with that? And do you think that has an impact on how the pregnancy goes and complications and mortality? Well, uh, if you look at fertility rates, you know we keep pushing pregnancy later and later and later. So you have the two compounding problems: the older you get, obviously you start picking up chronic diseases, and then you get this age problem where you maternal mortality is for real <laughs> when i was in detroit we did obstetrical care for a methadone clinic so we did 20 a month with polypharmacy all the time so it, you, you really didn't know what they were doing and now i'm seeing that here in ogden uh the the, the big big thing on the street right now is you can take methamphetamine and put yourself into labor. And so we get some really interesting people that show up hiring a kite on methamphetamine. And you really have a difficult time because, you know, they're not in a frame of mind that's extremely helpful. They're rather combative. And it's very difficult to uh, deal with their pain needs. 
because they just really don't respond to anything when they're on this uh, methamphetamine high. It, it has been interesting. A lot of the hospitals now are just doing routine drug screens on everybody, and it's been rather eye-opening to see how many people, uh, uh, how many pregnant people are on uh, uh, street drugs. And we do get a lot more, like I said, chronic diseases that we probably in the when I first started, a diabetic that didn't have her family and was done before 30, you would very, you know, gingerly tell them that maybe this, we ought to call it a day, but we get diabetics into their 30s and beyond, uh, and which makes for a compounding problem. You got a chronic disease and you got age-related problems. Well, Scott, thank you for leading into that my next question so so well we've talked kind of about illicit drugs but does that is that having um an adverse effect on the maternal mortality rate here well uh that's a great question we we uh i i remember not that long ago i was uh we had somebody come and as a laborist you have to you know whoever comes through the door you have to take care of and a uh, lady came in and she was bleeding and, and a lot of pain. And uh, we were scrambling to try to figure out, you know, we asked her if she'd been on anything and she denied it. And, uh, you know, we, what the, the dilemma occurred is, um, you know, what were you dealing with here? Uh, you know, you can't really do conduction anesthesia, epidurals or spinals if her platelet count's affected. Um, and so it's hazardous if she's hiring a kite on something, uh, for, uh, vomiting for general anesthesia. And, and so you're, sometimes you get into these really rather dicey situations where a decision has to be made, uh, to deliver the baby. The baby was not doing very well at all. It becomes a problem because you can't get, you know, you can't get their drug screen back. You don't know what medicines they're on. and. Uh, they're not of much help. And the other problem we have is in Obamacare, uh, the states are required to license lay midwife birthing centers. Uh, we have three in Ogden. Uh, there's seven licensed in Utah and multiple unlicensed ones right now. So you have somebody that's been laboring in a birthing center and then they sense there's a problem and they bring them into the hospital. And so those statistics end up on the hospital. Our maternal mortality and all those statistics are a little hard to gather because we don't have a mechanism to tell where prenatal care or early labor was occurring. That's, that's a really good point. I, I know about that effect, but it, it's humbling to re, rethink of that saying, oh, yeah, Birthing centers do have sort of inflated numbers because a lot of their patients that they, quote, save, they take on to the, the hospital. And it's like, well, they, they may have an adverse outcome at the hospital, but that's not an out, adverse outcome for the birthing center. That's an adverse outcome for the hospital. Well, it's, it's actually their numbers are quite small. Usually transfers are around 6 to 7%. This is in the newspaper, so I can talk about it, but they had a birthing center in Cedar City and the mid lay midwife there, it was a set of twins. They were 32 weeks in that neighborhood and she decided to encourage the mother to deliver in her birthing center. 
So she delivered the first one, didn't have any resuscitation equipment, and the baby died. So the family talked the mother into going to the hospital. They delivered the second one in the hospital. It lived. And then the police got involved, and she ended up, she's down at the state prison now for involuntary manslaughter. That seems like a very strange way to police birthing centers, but that's where we're at right now. There hasn't been, I assume there hasn't been a lot of huge changes in practice of, uh, in obstetrics uh, over time, but can you think of any changes that have occurred um, maybe recently that you think has had an impact on actually decreasing maternal mortality? Well, we, uh, in 1983, the University of Utah started their maternal fetal medicine program, and most areas of the state now are covered with maternal fetal medicine. And I think that has been a real positive complement to the obstetrical community. Uh, they're accessible by uh, all providers. I think it's been a real boom, and I think it really has had an effect upon our maternal mortality. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting. If you look at California, uh, the legislature got involved and said, we're tired of seeing pregnant women die bleeding to death. And so back in the uh, late 80s, uh, uh, David LeGrew was over the California Maternal Quality Care Collaboration. And if you go on a labor and delivery unit now, they have hemorrhage cards. So everything that is available for you, or if your hospital doesn't have them, you can access information off of that website. But he also found an association between C-sections and placenta accreta, where the placenta grows into the wall or even into the abdominal area. He was a real force uh, to let's do C-section for the right reasons and let's not do more than we have to because it has an adverse effect down the road. And so, yeah, we've got some uh, situations that are going on. I think the states are kind of laboratories of experimentation. And so it really does look that there are, you know, Utah has adopted those. Most of the two hospitals I'm at both have hemorrhage crash cards now and there is a usually a discussion on c-sections if it was appropriately done for the appropriate reasons a lot of the statistics for the providers are provided to them and they have a sort of a what the average c-section rate is in the hospital and if you're an outlier and i think things are being collected utah has a it's one of nine states that are in the uh, maternal mortality review committees, and they do publish those findings. They just barely published it in January, and a lot of the stuff that I am quoting is coming from there. Uh, there was an online report a year ago about this very thing by uh, Tori Metz. She's a maternal fetal at the U. You can pull it up and walk through it, and it just talks about the very things that we are talking about right now. So I think what happens is we're starting to become aware that we could do a better job. In the 1990s, you know, our maternal mortality rate was around 11 and 12, and now we're up to 17. And the question is, is if 60% of those mortalities are preventable, maybe we should. Uh, 
do what we can to deal with what we have. And so, yeah, I, I see a bright light. We do still have preeclampsia. The Chicago Lion Inn Hospital, as you walk in the door, there's five plaques sitting there. Four of them are filled in, and the one right over the door is blank. And it's still sitting there. It's been there for 89 years, waiting for somebody to discover the cause and cure of preeclampsia. So we got some bright young minds coming up, and here you can get yourself on a plaque. <laughs> <laughs> You've mentioned a couple times about uh, uh, laborists, and and I understand you're a laborist at at two hospitals in Ogden. Can you explain a little bit about the uh, what a laborist is? The hospitalist program started about 20 years ago, and they used to well some in some parts of the country they call us uh, OB hospitalists. Uh, actually, that's a company name, but it's sort of around here. Most people call them laborers. Basically, it's the same situation as the hospitalist. Uh, you're covering the in-hospital part of obstetrics. Uh, the problem we have here in the hospitals, I, you have to take your hat off to them. They acknowledge there's a problem is, is all of these places are bringing pregnant women you got these lay midwife clinics that have basically they just come to labor and delivery uh you don't have a lot of interaction with them before and you have people that visit from all over the place and this is a regional referral center and we get transfers in uh regular from outlying areas and so those people need to be taken care of so uh there's a need, and, and the other problem is is a lot of the doctors cover more than one hospital, and some, sometimes they get stuck at one hospital, and somebody has to deliver their kids at another if they're on calls tied up. So there was a need, and they're both hospitals here in Ogden have addressed it. Uh, Davis just started a program, and Layton is putting theirs back together again. Do you think that having a laborist in the hospital decreases the, the chance of maternal mortality or does it, uh, does it have any effect on it? The data is hard to come by because, uh, again, it's our ability to uh, get the data has been a real problem for us. I think with Utah, we have our collections getting a little more structured and the CDC now is has a checkoff box if person is pregnant. And I, I think that uh, the laborist has been shown to uh, decrease maternal mortality in those hospitals uh, if, if they, they are at the hospital when it occurs. But obviously, we don't have any influence on people who have a complication at home and pass away. There's no way we can uh, affect that outcome. So we're still dealing with these barriers that people have to deal with. It was interesting. There was a fellow uh, who came to Ogden Reason about two, three months ago. He's T.R. Reed. He wrote a book called Healing of America. Uh, and he did that about 15 years ago. And about four or five years ago, PBS Frontline decided to fly him all over the United States. And it's called Sick Around the World. And that's available on YouTube if you want to watch it. But he went around and compared all the healthcare systems in the industrialized world, about seven of them, to the United States. 
And he only, he asks three questions. One, is everybody included? Two, is it affordable? Three, does it bankrupt you? Unfortunately, the U.S. failed on two of those. But becoming aware, but after after he met, I, I got to talk to him afterwards, and I asked him, uh, how optimistic are you about change? And he says, you know, I am really optimistic this year. And I says, well, why is that? And he says, I think if the election's close, either candidate can waive the age requirement on Medicare. So that would cause some sweeping changes if that comes down to the wire. And so it would be an opt-in on Medicare, which would then take away these, the barrier to health care. So you mentioned about um, you know, primary OB providers and, and the laborists and the perinatologists who are with maternal fetal medicine. Do you see those three groups working together well in coordination? Do you see a lot of co-managing of patients? And do you see that system working well? I think it works well in an urban area where the breakdown occurs is when you get to a smaller hospital that doesn't have the number of um, deliveries that would be able to support these the supporting factors, maternal fetal medicine, laborist, et cetera. I think the COVID has brought some things into perspective that you can provide those services without actually having a face-to-face encounter. Uh, you look at the OBs today, and what they did is they converted a lot of their visits to online. On their first visit, they do their blood work. They have them give them prescription for blood pressure cuff. They have them do a lot of this stuff, and, and, and that way it cuts down on the face-to-face and potential encounter with the coronavirus. After we get done with corona, the new now will probably have a mixture of that. And by doing that, you can then extend your services. Um, I, I was in the Utah... Medical Association Library, and I, I thought, well, I think I'll read the first journal that's in the library. And the first journal that Utah Medical Association published, it was the journal that talked about health insurance. And it was, it was an ennobling article. It talked about the need for health insurance, and the need for health insurance would extend the arm of services that could be provided. Because statistically, 20% of people eat up 80% of your healthcare budget, but it's a different group of people each year. And so that's how health insurance was marketed to the providers originally. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, American Medical Association started Blue Cross Blue Shield, but it broke off and then it become an entity unto itself with no oversight. So we have this really interesting healthcare system that evolved out of World War II when they froze the wages, and the only benefit they could give is health insurance. And so that's how corporations got involved in health insurance, trying to lure labor from one person to another. They could give them a better health insurance policy. So I I think you remember Dr. McKenzie from Canada. He says, you know, this is the strangest 
way to take care of people. The very time you get injured, you lose your insurance when you need it the most. And I think that's some of the difficulty we're dealing with uh, is we're using an antiquated system that really doesn't apply to where we're at. And I think our statistics, we are, and uh, maternal mortality, we're number 47 in the world. We're, we're tied with Cuba and Zimbabwe. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's probably not going to look good on a, <laughs> if you're trying to recruit people internationally. And of the 10 biggest industrialized country, the U.S. is number 10. Uh, this is not a safe place to have babies. Let's talk a little bit about some evidence for the maternal mortality then. As a first world country, even though we are ranked among the third world countries almost, what kind of evidence is there for you know electronic fetal monitoring or ultrasound impact um, or even prenatal care? Like, is there what evidence is there for it? Well, you have to go back. I used to do a lot of humanitarian trips in Central and South America. When you go there, we would go out in the bush, and I would, you know, teach healthcare workers, and you'd sit and ask questions, and you'd have a healthcare worker and raise their hand, and they'd say, well, what sign do you have just before the mother dies of bleeding? And so you know that person sat next to somebody that bled to death. And so when you're there, you look at the three leading causes of death, and which is hemorrhage, toxemia, and infection. Really, it's very difficult because it's one in a hundred uh, for the mothers and one in ten for the babies. And if you look in the 1900s, it was one in a hundred all over the world. Actually, we had 1980s, 1990s. We were in Utah about 11 per hundred thousand, and we have over the last 10, 15 years, we're creeping up. We have these barriers that have been created, and we haven't faced the facts that we need to eliminate a lot of those barriers because we do have the services available, and there's capacity in the system to take care of these people. But we also have to deal with the fact that people have chronic diseases, they're getting older, and they think that they can have a baby and have a good outcome. That's a difficult road to hoe. So we have perceptions in the public about what they want, uh, and they don't have the data to make those decisions. Uh, like I said, we didn't have maternal mortality nationally. It was just barely published this year, and it hadn't been for about four or five years. I think that there's oversight now. The question is, how do you make it in a form that available to the public so that they can use it to make their decisions. It's hard, especially in obstetrics, I think, to find, you know, what what's called evidence-based medicine, because just like you said, it's it's hard to really get good data on it. But was just curious what your thoughts were and if you know of any great data um, in support of uh, things like non-stress testing, uh, biophysical profiles, and like Dr. Moore had mentioned about ultrasound and electronic fetal monitoring whether where you think there's really good data out there uh, on those things having an Im impact on maternal mortality or 
or is the data just not there? Well, the, the difficulty you have is a lot of the practice of obstetrics was driven by malpractice. It becomes more of a question of what does the public perceive is good care? Um, I've been involved in several malpractice cases. And the first question is, did you get an ultrasound? The second question is, is well, when did you do the C-section? And did you have a, co a consultation? Um, and so you find yourself using technology that may or may not have a, uh, um, a basis. So there've been multiple studies, oh, ultrasounds, at 20 weeks um, help as far as if your dates are good so that you don't have a premature baby born. Uh, they're helpful for uh, fetal screening for uh, congenital anomalies, lethal ones, and other congenital anomalies that can be uh, intervened with. Uh, fetal monitoring uh, has been around for years and years and years. A lot of the problem we have is uh, uh, nobody's going to do a double-blind study in this legal uh, environment. And so a lot of the things are kind of we're stuck with um, in, for this perceivable future. How about uh, OB anesthesia? Has there been much that has changed in uh, over your career that uh, you've seen uh, for the better as far as uh, anesthesia goes? When I first came to town the the year before I came, we had two anesthetic deaths in uh, mothers. Um, and what happened is the uh, physiology of, of a pregnant woman is different than a non-pregnant woman. We have people that are more trained in the obstetrical anesthesia area. The services have people, you know, that are assigned just to OB. I think all in all, uh, the obstetrical uh, practice uh, has improved immensely, and we've avoided a lot of problems and we have in-house. But again, you get to this problem when you get fringe areas where you get out where you got smaller hospitals, and uh, uh, they, they, you know, they got to wear a lot of hats, and some of them are trained well, and some of them may have been trained and not had a lot of uh, obstetrical experience and so sometimes the drugs reaction to the drugs can be a little bit different in a non-pregnant state we're consistently in utah below the national average as far as maternal mortality but when the united states is going up utah has gone up too and so yeah we've got some work to do it's a lot safer here than in the jungles of central america and it's a lot safer here than downtown detroit We've talked a lot about many pregnant women in the U.S. may have barriers to access for pregnancy service. I think it, it would be wise for us to talk for our audience about some of the options that patients have without insurance here in Ogden. You know, I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, the health department or Midtown or baby or baby or do you have any any other insight for that? Most of the problem is, is just knowing where to ask the question and being directed. I think uh, once they get into the system, if they happen to go to the emergency room or they go to labor and delivery, they get connected with somebody and, and that's fine. But the problem you get is, is, is the later into the pregnancy, the, you know, the complications become real 
uh, and your options of intervening become less and less. Uh, I think Midtown does a great job. Uh, I think that there's the whole idea of Obamacare was to extend coverage um, and the whole idea of having outlying clinics to make it easier for people to get to uh, has worked. Uh, a lot of the bigger cities, New York and whatnot, they, they have a van that goes around, picks up people and takes them to their business. They found it was a lot cheaper than uh, you could pay for the whole service on one preemie baby. And if you could prevent that, then you could pay for the service. Uh, and so I, I think now with COVID, it's been kind of interesting. We'll be, we'll, we'll be able to ex extend service to people that have uh, situations that prevent them from coming in. Uh, uh, that will be, I think it'll be a new frontier. How do you think the pandemic has uh, affected maternal health, what the labor and delivery protocols are right now? And if you think, if you've seen any data as far as morbidity or mortality for pregnant women as well as newborns in, in women who have been infected with COVID-19? Well, there's been very little. Obviously, the high-risk group is the over 65 with chronic disease. It was interesting, the CDC early on uh, said not to use steroids in people in the uh, early stages of COVID. And then uh, I don't know if you saw their report out of Oxford, England, they just reported on dexamethasone that you would use that later in the inflammatory stage and it uh, reduced ventilator deaths by 30% and support deaths by 20%. So it was the timing of the steroids. Well, we use steroids in mothers to uh, premature labor. And so the, the, it was a soft guideline not to use it uh, in the suspected. Now, there was a couple cases. There doesn't seem to be any transmission from an infected mother to the baby before delivery. Uh, it seems to occur after. And so they're obviously separating the baby from the mother until the mother tests negative. And as far as Ogden goes, we've had, you know, little or no cases maternal-wise. Anybody that's coming in for an induction or a C-section is screened three days before. Uh, we had one that had a positive. She came in and labor, they screened her, and she was negative and she delivered. But, uh, but it doesn't seem to transmit to the baby. It has been interesting because they, they have a PEDS unit at Ogden Regional, and it, it has been empty this whole winter. And we usually get, it usually gets filled up with RSV. So there has been a little benefit for everybody going around with masks on and not getting in big groups. HSV, I mean, the respiratory syncytial virus seems to have been avoided this year. That's awesome. Dr. Bohr, thanks for great questions. And Dr. Swift, thanks for, for answering all the questions and for your insight into maternal health and maternal mortality. And you know, especially for your expertise and um, experience in taking care of of pregnant women, and and for your service, you've done uh, you've done in this in in Ogden in the community for many many years, and it's really appreciated. So thanks for for your help and your insight and and spending some time with us today. Well, you guys would make anybody look good. Appreciate you. Thanks. Thank you, Scott.
This has been a production of the Ogden Surgical Medical Society. The producers were Clark Madsen, MD, Teresa Puskedra, MPC, and the board of the Ogden Surgical Medical Society. The executive director is Teresa Puskedra. Your hosts were Mark Johnson, MD, and Scott Moore, DO. Editing and sound design was done by Colton Gomez, and this is all supported by members of the Ogden Surgical Medical Society like you.